On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind with Aidan Boccolo, listen to my conversation with Aaron Birkby, CEO of Startup Catalyst and co-founder of Peak Persona. We discuss qualities to look for when hiring, how to improve founder mental health, and when should a business define its culture. My name is Aidan Boccolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life, to help you simplify and strategically grow scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Great to have you on. No, thanks for having me on. So Aaron, you're, you're the uh, CEO of Startup Catalyst, and you're also co-founder of Peak Persona. Can you tell me the story of how you came into those roles? Uh, sure. So, yeah, it's a bit random, my career path. So most of my life, I've been a, a tech entrepreneur. So had a number of different software companies and a couple of other types of businesses and sold out of the last couple in 2012 and actually set up a startup hub down on the Gold Coast, which we ran for three years. But through that process, got to really connect into the startup community. And I was blown away because as an entrepreneur before that, I'd never really had a community around me of other entrepreneurs. It always just felt alone and isolated. And I was just blown away by the fact that there is this startup community. So through that process uh, or through that time, you know, got to meet Steve Baxter, got to meet a lot of the other startup community leaders and just built relationships. And then looked at uh, what River City Labs was doing up in Brisbane and, and joined the, the team up here to run their first accelerator program uh, with Mira D. And uh, Steve had already set up Startup Catalyst by that point, and I'd already run missions into Silicon Valley. So we were sort of chatting about what we could do with Catalyst to make it bigger and better. And then I stepped in as CEO of that two and a half years ago now. And then with Peak Persona, just set that up recently. So about a year ago, I co-founded it with Peter Ellis, who's the CEO of River Sea Labs. And it came just from founders asking, a lot of talk in the community about founder mental health, but no one's really addressing the causation side. Like how do we actually upskill entrepreneurs to better manage themselves so that they don't actually lead into having mental health issues or, or having anxiety or struggling with work-life balance. So we developed these programs that are basically focused on taking the habits and routines of the most successful entrepreneurs and other high achievers around the world and just distilling it down into a very tangible content that people can adopt. So yeah, but a bit random. My whole career part's been very random, but I wouldn't change a thing actually. <laughs> <laughs> you said you sort of um, started up your own tech company and then, and then sold it in 2012. What motivated you to, to start it? Uh, yeah, so it's quite fascinating to think about because that one was random. So my brothers, I, I was actually in a job, uh, I was actually working in intelligence down in Canberra and my national manager changed and I was quite young and he questioned how I'd got to be in this manager role at my age and told me I wouldn't be promoted for another 10 years. He knew nothing about me, but it was just purely based on my age. And I thought, well, that sucks. So I want to quit. <laughs> so I, I quit. Um, and at the time, my brothers were opening a restaurant up on the Gold Coast and they needed some software written for them for their point of sale, but they also wanted some software that would enable them to offer wireless internet to backpackers and others that were coming through. And at the time, there was no solution in the market. So I wrote some software for that. And the nature of the Gold Coast was a lot of hotel owners and operators that were coming in on Mondays on their day off and they were asking about the software that I'd written. So we ended up spinning that out into a company and that just took off. It went a bit crazy. So I ran that for nine years, ended up in eight countries with about 6 million users a year hitting our services. But yeah, it wasn't planned. It just sort of happened. It just, it was, it was definitely demand driven, which was quite a lesson in itself. Yeah. So how did you, uh, I guess, being demand driven, 
How did you find the scaling up process? Was it something that you were trying to you know, catch up on? Yeah, definitely. I think that's the best way to put it. I feel like we were always playing catch up, like, particularly in that business. Always felt that we were reacting to the market rather than really being strategic. And I actually think maybe that's a good thing. We were constantly evolving. And I remember like, we, we would go into sales meetings and the clients would ask for things that we didn't even know what words, what the words meant. And we would just commit on the spot to say, yes, sure, we can do that. And then we'd have to leave the meeting, go Google it, find out what they meant, <laughs> and then actually work out how to build it or you know, acquire that product. So um, it was absolutely reactionary. Scaling it globally was a, it, again, that was something we didn't plan. All the countries we ended up operating in were all inbound inquiries where then we started putting on distributors, but it wasn't strategic. and. I wish we had a bit more strategy and a bit more time to feel like we could develop that strategy. But yeah, so many lessons out of that, I guess. Yeah. What, what are some of the key lessons you've learned from it? If you had to do it again, what would you put in place? You know, for those yeah. listening, I guess, you know, what can they do now so that when it does come time to scale, yeah. they're sort of a little bit more um, prepared for it? Yeah. Well, there's two things that immediately came to mind when you asked that. One was don't try and be all things for all people. So we definitely... Like every time a client asked for something, we would just say yes. And in the early days, I think you have to do that. I believe in this thing called the evolution of yes, which when you're starting out, you have to say yes to everything to discover what the market wants and to, and also to validate and prove yourself and build some credibility. But over time, you have to get better at saying no and not being afraid to actually fire a big part of your customer base, which we didn't do until quite late. So probably about year five or six when we just decided to completely discontinue certain products that had quite a large number of clients, but the amount of time and effort required to manage those clients and service them exceeded the return we were getting. So yeah, I think in hindsight, that's, that was lesson one for me. Don't, don't say yes to everything and don't always try and do things just to please the client. Although that might sound counterintuitive, I think you do need to get good at saying no and sticking to your core value proposition. The second lesson that you made me think of with that question was definitely around hiring talent. So we had some amazing stuff, but I think you know, in hindsight with that business, I think I didn't really hire people who were exceptional. And I wish in hindsight, I'd hired sort of the entrepreneurial mindset. We had a few people apply for roles at different times that they were entrepreneurial. And at the time, I was a bit risk adverse, worrying that they would just come in and leave after a period of time. But I actually, I think that entrepreneurial spirit, if you actually give them the right task to do, they'll take ownership and run with it. And I think we should have done that more, actually hired people who would take complete ownership of an area and actually run with it. So I think, yeah, don't don't settle on staff like higher quality, hire people who scare you a little bit in terms of their, their talent and aspiration. Yeah, I think that's a difficult thing to do as business owners, especially when the ego comes into it as well. And yeah, definitely not an easy thing to do to, to hire those people that have that, like you said, entrepreneurial mindset. I'd like to get your thoughts on when you're hiring people, how much emphasis should you know business owners place on mindset over you know raw talent or skill? Yeah, so I'm and look, I've got this wrong at different points in the past. So like lots of my early businesses hired purely for skill set, and I guess what I've learned through hiring a lot of different people is hire for their culture, like hire for their attitude. So hire for their attitude, hire for their cultural fit, because skills can be acquired, but it's really hard to change mindset and it's really hard to change culture. You want to protect the culture of your organization. So for me, it's entirely about mindset now. You can always upskill someone, you can always send them on training, the right attitude, like the right mindset will actually dive in and like self-learn in the role. But I think it's so critical. I mean, 
I actually don't look at educational qualifications. The only way I look at that is like if someone's completed certain university degrees, I just look at it as commitment to completing it. I actually don't look at it for any particular skill. For me, it's all about what have you actually done? What tangible things, what experience have you developed? But more importantly, what's your attitude towards things? How, what's your mindset like? Do you fit the culture of the organization? Can I work with you? Can my, the rest of my team work with you? you know, are you a positive influence on the people around you? Because I think they're the things at the end of the day, they really make or break your company. Yeah, definitely. You can have the most talented people, but if they're not a good fit within your organization and you know, you're not clear on what your culture is, then that, that'll suffer from the people you introduce in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, super valuable advice. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting, you know, like when we go to places like Silicon Valley, even a startup that's only a couple of people, like a small team, they will have a clearly defined culture for their, for their startup. And we don't see that as much in Australia. But in the US, I mean, the, the reason you have a defined culture is because culture are basically the rules. Like it's like the, the railroad track of how your organization is going to operate on scale. Because as you scale the team, if you're growing your team really fast and adding 10, 20, 30, 40 people a month, you can't easily control that culture unless it's clearly defined. And so you need those parameters. You need that sort of playbook of this is, this is what we stand for. So in the US, a startup founder, they're, they're ambitious. They're planning to scale their team very quickly. So they define their culture quite early. But in Australia, we tend to leave culture as something later. We tend to, like a lot of companies, tend to only address it once it's become an issue and there's a bad culture and they need to correct it. So it's one thing I think if, you know, for any of your listeners that have those early stage companies, even if it's just them, like define what the company stands for, define your culture and sort of like document it so it's known and then hire for that. I think, I think it's really critical. Are there any artifacts you've seen overseas um, in Silicon Valley? You know, you mentioned, you know, playbooks. Are there, you know, word documents? Are there phrases? I guess what tangible things can business owners do to, you know, put in place to make yeah, you edit? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a really good question. So look, most of these are fairly short sort of statements. Like I think last time I saw the Facebook cultural thing, I think it was four key statements. And one of them was definitely, you know, move fast and break things. And, you know, Google had do no evil, although I've heard that they've actually dropped that, which doesn't make sense. But yeah, I think, look, these can be quite small. It's just like, these are the values that we stand for. And you can Google, a lot of companies actually put their their value statements out there, their cultural statements. But I think also, like to your question, I think it comes back to being really clear on what your purpose is. Like, why do you exist as as an organization? What's your mission statement? And the problem is when most people think of their company mission statement, like in many cases, people fixate on what they're currently doing. So they talk about their product or their service. Really, you want to talk about the impact. Like how are you actually changing humanity? What's your impact on your clients and customers as humans? So if you define your mission, like your mission purpose, this is why we exist. And then have a couple of key parameters of that set your sort of like your rules for your culture, the things, I mean, move fast and break things with Facebook is a perfect example. Like they could have just said move fast, but it's not, it's and break things. So that means... No, their culture, like you think of a CTO or a, a director of engineering inside Facebook versus a director of engineering or a CTO inside, say, Suncorp. So at Suncorp, they would measure their server uptime. And if that's in the years, that would be deemed like a great result. But at Facebook, if, if everything's running smoothly and not breaking, that's actually a bad thing. It actually is against their culture because they want to be pushing the envelope of innovation. So that's why I think you need, it could just be a couple of sentences, but just write down, what do you stand for? What's your purpose and mission? And then what are the sort of rules that you will abide by to achieve that mission? And like I said, once you've got that in place, it's then easy to scale and then easy to, you know, once again, use it as a, as a template criteria for hiring people. And then when they do come on board, you can then show them again, this, this, this is what the you know, company stands for. Here are the values. and Here's why we exist. 
and get everyone on the same page. Whereas if you don't yeah, have that in place, then it's much harder to to replicate it. And you know, you might business owners might you know spend hours upon hours trying to explain and what the business stands for. And if they don't have a clear understanding, then it's hard for them to explain to anyone else what it um what it stands for. Yeah, completely. And you know what you said there about the business owners explaining it, because the other thing that happens, you know, I've seen companies where you know the founder will define their cultural statement, but then their actions are actually the exact opposite, or they break their own rules. Where you know ultimately. Your team, your staff, everyone, even your clients, they'll look at your leadership, like what you actually do. Actions speak much louder than words. It's like having kids, right? Like being a dad. My kids, it doesn't matter what I say. They'll look at my behavior and what I do and they'll mirror that. So that's the other part of it is you have to live it. You have to believe it and lead by example. Yeah, because um, I've been in organizations where we've had, we've had you know, values and, and statements, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, they're nice on a wall, but unless a business actually abides by them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people are remarkably perceptive. I mean, you mentioned before, as kids, we can perceive and we can look at actions. And I think as adults, we've still got that innate ability to do it in the environments that we're in. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, you, you see it all the time. People want to fit in, so they mirror those around them. So you see it in relationships, like when people are dating, they, they mirror the person that they want to impress. Um, but you see it in workplaces. I mean, the fact that go and stand in Eagle Street in Brisbane and, and look at all the corporate types going to their, their jobs, they all dress exactly the same. And then, you know, those of us that are startup founders pride ourselves on, oh, we're rebellious, we can wear whatever we want, but yet we all rock into co-working spaces in the black T-shirt and jeans. We just mirror, and it's bizarre. Like very few people are actually unplugged from the matrix and actually thinking for themselves. Which I don't want to sound negative, but it is funny to watch how we just mimic those around us. Yeah, and it's often done at a at a subconscious level. We're, not, we're often not even aware that we're doing it, um, mm. which is fascinating. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. How we how we pick up on little things that other people do, and I think it comes back down to, and I mean, it's a cliche term, but you know, you're you're the average of the five people you hang around with. And it's probably it probably comes back down to that that mirroring aspect. You know, we mirror the five people around us. We we mirror everyone really, but we mirror more of the people that we spend more time with. Yeah, I love that. It's really about the tribe you have around you, and it is mirroring. I think it's also, and this is probably really good business advice too. But having people around you who challenge you and call out your own BS in a lot of ways. So when you have a good mentor, they'll do that. But it's it's more than just a mentor. It's actually having that peer group, even in your relationship. Like this is something I've learned recently with my own relationship is, you know, I, I actually want to be challenged. I actually want someone that calls me out on my BS and pushes me to be better. It's not a negative thing. It's, it's incredibly positive when you have someone who understands you in that way and encourages you. They see something in you that maybe your own self-confidence doesn't see and it pushes you to be better. And I think it's important as a founder to find those circles, like those people who will, will push you in that way and support you and encourage you. But it's not just cheerleading. It's actually a bit challenging and confronting at times as well. Yeah, and I think that's what people sometimes can get confused about is the supportive community isn't about, you know, complete optimism and complete positivity. Like you said before, it's it's having it's more of a having a safe space where you can be challenged to grow. Mm. And that's where the value is really, is in the growth. But yeah, it's having that supportive, that supportive framework and supportive community around you that allow you to be yourself. And then for others to, and for you to be open to possibilities and, and open to suggestions. Yeah. I love that too. Like the safe space, it's so true. And I think, you know, when you're building an organization, you need to do that for your staff as well. So you need to create those safe spaces for your staff. You need to have the 360 degree feedback loops. Um, you need to have support mechanisms for them and internal mentors for them and external mentors for them. So yes, it's looking at yourself as a founder. How do you build that? But then how do you build that within your organization for your teams as well? How has Startup Catalyst done it? 
Well, Catalyst is interesting. So there's only 1.6 of us. So I'm, I'm full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a part-timer three days a week. But then we do have a dozen mission leaders. But for us, we're, I guess where we're really conscious of the what I'd call, there's this whole area of work that basically I focused on, like both with Catalyst and Peak Persona. It's all about reprogramming and recalibrating human minds. So actually, the main purpose of Catalyst is to take our best talent to places like Silicon Valley to make them realize that they are world-class, they, they just didn't realize it, but also to make them sort of um, what we've been talking about here, like disconnecting from the matrix and make them realize they can do anything, they just need to choose to do it. So it sounds really bizarre, but the way we do that on our trips is through orchestrating shared experiences with other like-minded people. And you can do this within your organization. Like there's also been some studies about relationships. Like if you want the best relationships that stand the test of time often start in the early couple of years, there's some sort of adversity event. Like there's something that really brings them together. It's challenging, it's testing, but it brings them together in a way that they communicate differently. And part of what we do on our Catalyst missions is to actually put people, like we physically exhaust them. We drain them their energy levels. It's emotional. People are often crying at some point. It sounds like this sounds like a really bad pitch, but it is a lot of fun. But you know, it's, it's really smack them in the face, see what's happening overseas, but also put them alongside their counterparts overseas who are working on epic stuff to make them realize that now they can do that here. So, but you do it with a like-minded group of people. So you can do that within your organizations. You can do it with offsites, you know, team building things, but it needs to be more than just the generic team building activities that most companies run. It needs to be something where you actually orchestrate a hardship. And I'll give you an example, actually. Blue Sky, uh, so they, they run a thing every year. So everyone in, inside the organization gets to choose an adventure, like a challenge. And it has to be something that pushes them, something that they're not sure that they can complete. And they can do this as an individual or they have team events as well. And locally here in Queensland, um, Ben Southall, who's this incredible adventurer, he's the adventurer in residence in the office of the chief entrepreneur here in Queensland. But he runs this venturer program. And it's very similar. It's Take people away for a week into the bush or wherever. The next one, I think, is going to Mongolia. So any founder can go on that. But it's physically challenging, mentally challenging, but you do it with a group of other entrepreneurs and you just end up being way more vulnerable and having conversations you couldn't otherwise have, which then unlocks stuff within yourself, but also creates this cohort of people that you can then have any conversation with. So I think there's lots of different ways to do it within an organization. But for Catalyst, to answer your question, we, we're such a small team. We work so closely together that it hasn't, hasn't really been an issue for us. Thanks for elaborating it. And thanks for you know, sharing what other businesses can do. I do agree on the um, not having just generic team building activities for the sake of ticking a, a HR box, in a mm-hmm. sense. It needs to be more uh, strategic, in a yeah. sense, and more, more purpose-driven than just getting everyone together you know, once a year, twice a year. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and it needs to be more than just having a bit of fun and doing, like most team building activities, they sort of focus on the mechanics of working together as opposed to actually hitting on psychology. Like what we do with Peak Persona, it's a lot of it is high-performance psychology, but it's, we don't use those words and we don't talk about any psychological principles. The way we do it is random things like getting participants to make their bed every morning, which sounds bizarre, but you can have, there's these other little psychological triggers that you can introduce. So knowing that you can then orchestrate really good team offsites where it is about hitting psychological points and having unlocks rather than just on, you know, physically building a catapult or something together. I love the focus on, um, you know, the mindset and, and founder mental health. You mentioned it perfectly before earlier on in the conversation about, you know, as founders, you can often feel quite lonely in what you do. Yeah. And it's about finding like-minded people and having a community around you that can allow you to sort of get out of that loneliness. And it's, mm. I think I, I read something the other day 
about loneliness being, I think, one of the highest causes of death, maybe. I think that was it. Or it was, you know, I think it's, it's, quite, it's more prevalent now in, in our society than, than it ever has been in the past. Maybe with, you know, social media making us feel kind of more connected, but also more isolated in a sense. Yeah, it's systemic. I mean, the, so the leading cause of death under 40 in Australia is mental health related. Like, it's a massive issue. And as a founder, you can feel incredibly isolated. And look, even if you're in the, the strongest relationship, and I can, I can speak from a lot of personal experience here, even if you're in the strongest relationship and you've got a, you know, friends around you and no shortage of peers, you can still be incredibly isolated. And the reason for that is you don't want to burden others with your stresses. So, you know, often an entrepreneur has, they're, they're risking something for their family going out to start this business and their spouse is often carrying the weight of, you know, income, uh, family, like management, looking out for the kids, whatever, while the entrepreneur is out doing their thing. And because of that, the entrepreneur doesn't want to come home and say, oh, by the way, honey, we're almost bankrupt and I lost my major client today and two of my staff left and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they, they carry that burden, they don't share it, and then they don't have an outlet for that. So they end up incredibly stressed, anxious. They have imposter syndrome, self-doubt. Even in their peer group, they are afraid of being judged if it's not the right peer group. And you know, then you put in things like if they're in an accelerated program or they've got external investors, it just compounds even more because there's this pressure to perform. They don't feel they can have that tough conversation. So a lot of it is, first of all, we need to change that entire culture we have a culture that celebrates working 80 plus hours a week like it's a badge of honor. Like we've just got it so wrong. And, you know, there's a couple of tweets on the weekend about these major Silicon Valley investors talking about, you know, this movement towards just working a normal hour a week, like there's something wrong with it. And it's just systemic. And the reality is, so if you, if you look at the stats, something like 95% of all startups will fail. Even if they get seed funding, it's still 95%. Even by the time they get to their Series A investment, which is their first institutional investment, it's still a statistic like 75% of them won't make back a one-times return on their money. So more than likely, an entrepreneur is going to fail on their current endeavor. And it's just about recycling going again. But yet every entrepreneur will sacrifice for the future. Like they'll skip date nights, they'll skip quality time with their kids, you know, survive on no food, they won't exercise, they won't look after their physical health, they won't basically look after any area of their life other than their business on the belief that one day in the future, it's all going to be okay because I'm going to have my exit and live happily ever after. But the reality is for most, they'll never get there. You need to actually enjoy the journey. So we need to get much better at balancing our entire life and living for the moment and being really present in the current moment. And that starts with, we need to change the conversations. Like we need to change what we celebrate. We need to celebrate taking time out away from the business. We need to celebrate quality time with loved ones. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a massive issue. It's, it's just systemic. And it's not just founders. Everyone in life, I, I think, actually has this. Yeah, yeah. Even, even I guess in their you know traditional career path, it's the same sort of thing. You know, it's the work hard mentality that's sort of been instilled in in the generations. You know, the harder you work, yeah. the more you'll get in a sense. But it's it's really not. And like you said, it's so important to to take stock and, and take some time off to prevent burnout and overwhelm and and stresses and everything else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I actually studied law, and you know, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, and I lasted six months in a law firm, and. One of the reasons I really disliked it was the culture. So there it was celebrated how many consecutive days you'd worked without a day off. And the record was 62 days, like as in no weekends, no days off. And these are 12 hour plus days. And that was celebrated. And meanwhile, at the same time, one of the partners died of a heart attack. I just think, you guys not get this. Like this is, this is not living. Even if you're really passionate about what you're doing, you love what you do, that's just not sustainable. And it just breeds really like boring humans because all they know is work. 
So, yeah, anything we can do to, to change that. And you're right, it is about taking quality time out. And I think social media definitely has had an influence. I think not just social media, but, you know, look at all the productivity hacks and everything. I mean, we've gone from, you know, some of my early businesses, it was all about marketing via direct mail. Now we've got email. We've got all these ways of being in touch, which just means we put more into our day. It doesn't actually mean we're more efficient. It just means there's more. So we're busier than ever. And social media gives us this vanity perspective of we see other people's lives based on what they present and therefore we judge ourselves against that rather than what's actually underneath. So there's so many issues we need to fix. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's um, something I'm trying to work towards as well is especially with, with the failure rate for, for small business owners and startups is, is trying to actively reduce that. It's a mm. huge issue. Yeah, you know, massive. Giving, giving people the tools, the resources, the mentoring and you know, through shared stories as well. You know, it's not all—it's not a rosy picture out there, and it's—it can be very easy to compare yourself to, to what other people are doing. Mm. You know, without without truly knowing, you know, what's what's going on behind the scenes. Exactly. For the audience, are there any? Are there any? I don't want to call them hacks. What are what are some really key important routines or habits that you have found has you know has been most effective in in your life or in the Peak Persona community? Yeah. Um, so short answer is lots, and, and it yeah you know, for everyone it's quite different. So so in our Peak Persona program, it's the starting program is a 30-day program. And every day for 30 days, we introduce a new technique or habit. And you know, different people take different things out of that. And it's interesting actually because everyone everyone wants a checklist. Like everyone comes into the program going, oh, I want to be told exactly what to do every day. Like it's like it is a hack. But the reality is what actually holds us back is our own internal dialogue and psychology. So in the program, even though we introduce every day a task, at the end of every day, they have the particular Participants have to record this three-minute reflection view on how that task made them feel. And what that actually does, that's where the true value is because they, they realize their own internal thoughts and triggers that are actually blocking them and holding them back. So, for example, like we have a clothing topic, which is just basically the concept is dress to make yourself feel like a rock star. Like whatever that means for you, you have permission to wear whatever you want to engineer your own psychology, like dressing for psychology. And it's really fascinating where people go with that. So they, they do the cleanse of their wardrobe. Like they get rid of all the clothes that have a bad association from like a bad date or from an ex or just don't fit anymore, the wrong size. But in the reflection videos, they, as they're doing that, they realize they're hanging on to these clothes that they don't fit into anymore. Then they question, why don't I fit into these clothes anymore? Well, that's because of my diet. But my diet's wrong because I'm not engaged in food preparation in my house. Why aren't I engaged in that? Well, that's actually because my relationship's broken. Why is my... So they end up having these massive realizations from something that is a really random topic like clothing that actually then causes them to have a real conversation with their spouse. But to answer your question, like for me, during the GFC, our business was doing like really badly. I was incredibly stressed to the point I had physical symptoms of anxiety. And the only thing that worked for me was exercise, like really heavy resistance training exercise just to basically wear my body out so that when I got into bed, I would actually sleep through the night. Um, so exercise remains my number one. But more importantly, for me, it's all about and, and this is the, the big day of peak persona is getting up early. So get up two hours before the day starts happening to you and use that time deliberately for yourself to engineer yourself into the best version of you so that when you arrive at work, you're in control of the day. So most people wake up, you know, their kids might wake them up and immediately they're reacting. They're responding to the world. They don't actually come in with purpose and, and you know, deciding how their day is going to be. So for me, I wake up four, at least by 4.45 every day, hopefully 4.20 if my body clock's in sync. I go to the gym for an hour or run for an hour. In that time, I listen to music because of what I do with Peak Persona. There's a lot of Peak Persona community stuff I do in that time. Then I come home, I get myself ready. I have 
breakfast and everything with my kids. So I spend the morning with my kids and then I come into work and at work, the very first thing I do is like have my list of the three things that day that I, I have to achieve. They're, they're my priorities and work towards them. And then, yeah, there's lots of other techniques. Like for me, music is a big one. So I use, most people listen to music for the mood that they're in. Like they'll put on some song because they're, they're sad, they want to listen to a sad song or they're happy, they want to listen to a happy song. Whereas what we sort of talk about is, well, no, come up with playlists that are for the mood you want to be in. So I'm naturally an introvert. So if I'm going to facilitate an event, I have this facilitator persona playlist. So it's all songs to put me into a sort of extrovert mode or rock star mode. And so even if I'm you know, feeling down, but I know I've got something big on that day where I have to go and run an event, I'll put that music on and I might listen to that music for an hour in the morning. And at first it irritates me because I'm not in that mode, but it switches me into that mode. So there's heaps of techniques like using transitioning tools, using third spaces, which is any space other than your work or home, um, using downloads and you know, disconnected from technology. All of these sort of techniques are ways to, I guess, transition into the mode of action that you need to be operating in. So you're setting yourself up into a peak mindset ahead of the task. But really all that means is being really deliberate in your choices, like actually choosing the mentality you want to rock up in. Because ultimately all of this, it's just in our head. It's just a choice. But yeah, there's, there's lots to it. Like there, there's heaps of other things that work for me, but definitely exercise and music are big ones. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're massive. And I, I love how you, you listen to a playlist or listen to music that they can change your, um, your state. And that you've, yeah. you know, you've put it together. So you've probably got, you know, I, I imagine a number of states that you, you want to be in. And then depending on what you need, you can just hit play. And then in the background, you don't even need to think about it. It's already sort of changing your, um, your mindset and thought patterns. That's quite clever. Yeah. And the way you framed it there is really spot on. It's, it's about like deliberately putting things into your habits and routines so that this becomes automatic. You're not having to think about it. So like for me, when I, when I go home, I want to be the best dad I can be. And, and if I just rock into the house and I'm still in my work mode, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So I, I have a playlist that I play in the car on the way home often, which is more about, it's almost like a love playlist for me, but it's about connection. It's about coming back to a, being a human, not just a CEO. So I often play that in the car on the way home and it just completely changes my state of mind. So that when I walk into the house... I'm back to dad mode or back to husband mode. But it, yeah, so critical just having those little things that you just, they become a habit where you don't think about it and it's its automatically programming you into the mode you need to be into. Yeah, I remember I was reading, um, I'm not sure if you read it, but High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard. One of his, um, he's, he's got a lot. So it's a, it's a really great book to read if you want to delve a bit further into um, what Brendan Burchard does and what he recommends. He, he delves into a lot. The one, one that sort of stuck with me was, encapsulates what we've just talked about now is set the intention, you know, yeah. and it can, be, it can be as simple as taking, you know, 10 deep breaths before you transition from work to home. Mm. Yeah, I love that phrasing too, set the intention, because it is about that being really conscious, like actually being deliberate in your choice of how you set yourself up for the day. And it is taking those moments, like it could be a breathing exercise. It could just be, as you go to work, taking an extra lap around the block just to really put yourself into the right mindset. And they're simple things, but it does require that conscious thought. And I think the other thing as well is like a big thing for me is setting myself up the night before. So the night before, that's when you decide what you're doing the next day. So I put out my gym gear. I completely reset the house back to the you know clean slate so there's no stress triggers the next day. I get my clothes ready for the next day. I get the, you know, the glass of water ready. I get my vitamins ready. But the goal is when you wake up, everything's there so there's no roadblocks. It just becomes automatic. and um, there was a great blog post someone shared. I can't remember who wrote it, but they shared it the other day. I just read it where they even put out like their dental floss 
but they actually pull the dental floss out and put it on the bathroom counter because it makes them more likely to do it because it's right there. Of course, you just grab it and do it as opposed to you know having to open the drawer, get it out, peel it out, which are all little tasks, but they're little steps. And the more you reduce the steps, the more likely you are to do something. So it is it's all about this just engineering your life to take away all the blockers and to actually just do things without having to think about them too much. Yeah, and, and to facilitate habits and make it as easy as possible so that you, you can't say no because it's it's almost easier to, to do it than to to think of an excuse yeah. not to because you've eliminated all those all those little things mm. about why yeah. you can't do it. And then, you, you know, the perfect step in process to just, you know, like I say, get up, you know, your shoes are already there, so put them on and, and off you go in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Aaron, um, a question that I'd like to ask all guests is, uh, what's your definition of the grind? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, oh, wow, that's a really good question. So my, I think my definition of the grind is doing work that you don't enjoy. So, when it, you know, the first thing I think of is, um, so this might come across weird, first thing I think of is people are employees. So uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't understand employee mindsets. Like I don't understand people who are in the same job for 20 years. To me, that is like the worst thing possible. So I see the grind as those people who go to work 9 a.m. every day, check out at 5 o'clock every day. They live for the weekend and that's the sum total of their existence. Whereas, you know, being an entrepreneur and having to work ridiculous under ridiculous pressure and having that complete emotional roller coaster ride, I actually don't see that as the grind because you know the purpose behind it. You have a reason and you're living your reason. I don't know if that answers it, but that's, just, that's what came to mind. No, it's um, everyone's got everyone's got such a different answer, so it's always good to hear what people think because you know sometimes grind has a negative connotation, sometimes it has a positive connotation. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so thanks for sharing your thoughts on it all. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting. I mean, I have a negative association with it, but I associate it like as much as my life is that roller coaster of entrepreneurial journey, and it's incredibly stressful at times. I don't see that as the grind. I see the grind as I think of cogs turning. Mm-hmm. You know, just the repetitiveness of people who go to a day job that they hate. That's what I see as the grind. Yeah, that, that, uh, that, that resistance. Yeah. yeah. Perpetual resistance. Yeah. Aaron, um, where can people find more about uh, not only Startup Catalyst, but Peak Persona? Sure. So uh, Startup Catalyst is startupcatalyst.com.au. On the website, we have all our upcoming missions. So whether you are you know, technically talented, a startup founder, a corporate innovator, an investor, pretty much anyone else. We have a heap of different missions, particularly our London mission in June each year is the one that is a lot of fun and anyone is actually eligible to go on that one. So all the details are up on the website. For Peak Persona, it's peakpersona.com. And uh, we actually have another program kicking off every month. We run a program starting with our 30-day shift program. But again, all the details are up on there. Anyone can jump on and register. I'm more than happy to share some promo codes with you too to give everyone a discount as well. Yeah, sure. We can, um, we can put it in the uh, description of the podcast. For people to use. Awesome. Cool. Uh, one other thing I'd like to ask, you've got a new book coming out um, soon called Peak Performance Persona. Yes. Yes, we do. So we need to actually finish it. It's, it's, it's been a long time coming. But yeah, it's basically taking a lot of the, the content out of our program and actually putting them into a, a book. So it's a really interesting thing. Everyone asks for what we teach during the program, like that's the answer. And we're more than happy to share all the content from the program. Like it, it's Most of the content, it's taken from elsewhere. And so that's, that's the purpose of the book is to share the content. But ultimately, what people actually need, is, like we were talking about before, it's all those same things. They, they need a peer group for social accountability to go through a shared experience to actually achieve the unlocks, like the realizations. But uh, yeah, the book should be out early next year. Oh, brilliant. Can't wait. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just want it done. <laughs> 
No, it's not easy putting a book together. I've just put a put an ebook together at the right. moment. And it's it's taken yep. yeah, a fair bit of time to even put that together. And that's only, you know, 20, 30 pages. No. Yeah, well, I think I have Australian Life Syndrome, so I, I keep you know working on that and then other ideas for other books and mm-hmm. suddenly I'm writing blogs about different things. So yeah, just just need to focus. We should we should record another uh, another episode about shiny object syndrome because it's uh, oh, we totally should. It's something I've, I've come across even just the last couple of weeks about you know going through a few challenges at the moment and um, yeah, like I realise it, like I can see them and it, it's hard. It's hard to say no to all the all the new shiny things out there. Could you think, oh, if I just do this thing, then my life will be so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we should definitely talk about it. there. Is, there is absolutely something in. You know, the process of start it's like people who buy self-help books. So self-help books are the most purchased but never read <laughs> books of any category. And it's the same, you know, start of the year, everyone signs up at the gym and then never goes because it's easier to take that first step towards, oh, I've done this. Mm. So heaps of people, they get an idea and then they start but never actually follow through. And then the next shiny object becomes more attractive because starting is easy. It's the follow through that's really hard. So we, we should definitely talk yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Maybe after the, uh, when the book's close to be published, we'll, we can do another episode and um, we can delve not only deeper yeah. into the book, but deeper into shiny object syndrome. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Look, thanks again so much for your, uh, for your time today. No, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it.